0: This is the Digital Nomad Quest podcast with Sharon Sung, teaching people how to build passive income, become financially free, and design their best lives. Hey guys, it's Sharon from Digital Nomad Quest, and today we have Vitaly from Succeed REI. How are you doing today? I'm
1: doing good, Sharon. Thanks for having me on the channel.
0: Sweet. Yeah, I'm excited to chat. Maybe you can tell us about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. So I am an attorney. I'm also a real estate investor in New York State, in upstate New York, near the capital. And I've been investing in real estate since 2011, and I've been practicing law since 2010, and I've gotten into some additional side businesses. I'm a part owner of a real estate brokerage now. Also, am a licensed real estate broker. So I got my hand in a lot of different areas and different money-making activities.
0: Sweet. So I know your whole channel is about kind of real estate investing. Do you feel like having a career in law helps? With the whole real estate investing side,
1: yes and no. I think that you don't need to be an attorney. You don't need to have a formal education to be very successful in real estate. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it did in a couple of ways, but I don't think it's necessary. But for me, it was going through law school and coming out of law school having a decent-paying job right away um, definitely helped. It's not. It wasn't like doctor money or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it was under under six figures coming out of law school, but it was still higher than probably. You know, an average for for most people, but at the same time, you also end up acquiring a lot of student loans. So, you know, that's a drag on what you're doing too. If you want to invest in real estate and get mortgages and and those sorts of things, it might be a negative downside. So aside from a good job and good base to start from, you also, you know, start building some connections and, you know, you might know other attorneys in the area who you can turn to for help or assistance with different legal things. The other thing is sort of your legal training. There was no, I mean, they teach you property courses in law school, but sort of theory nothing is really practical. I didn't learn anything about landlord-tenant law while I was in law school. So that wasn't, you know, that didn't do anything for me there. Law school does teach you is it teaches you how to analyze things really well and, and how to think like a, like a lawyer and how to think critically and analytically. So I think in that respect, I think it helps. I also think it's, like I said, it's not necessary. I think if you have that kind of mindset already uh, and people who did really well in law school probably already came into law school with that skill set to begin with, it doesn't necessarily mean you know that you're going to do better or worse if you didn't go to law school.
0: I mean, I like that you have both uh, backgrounds because I feel like. You're like a trusted source, right? I could, I feel comfortable like listening to your content, you know what I mean? Because I know that you have that uh, lawyer background, so it's awesome. Um, So yeah, today I think it'd be great if we can chat about building passive income through real estate investing because you've told me some stuff about how you're able to like continuously get more properties, and then it's like almost unlimited how you're doing it because you don't need to keep putting in your own money. So I'd like to learn more about that. I'm curious because I'm like, how how do you even do that? I'm like, can you yeah walk us through the process? of kind of continuously buying these rental properties
1: yeah so um, let me just quick start to take a step back from that question because i think Mm -hmm. you you need to have um kind of a baseline to start from before you get into that type of real estate Mm -hmm. investing so when i started um the first property i bought was a house hack it was uh, a property that was a two-family um building where i moved into one of the units rented out the other one and kind of did the landlording thing, learn the ropes, learn how to manage tenants, how to deal with property issues, how to be a property owner, those sorts of things. And um, when I started doing that, when I first bought that first property, there was no chance that anyone was going to give me their money You know, before I bought that property, their money to invest in you know apartment complexes or anything like that. So I just want to make sure that that's clear to people. That it's, it's a bit of a caveat there where you either need to start small, like I did, investing your own money initially. Um, And with house hacking, you know, there are very good advantageous mortgage programs out there where you don't have to put a ton of money down. Um, People probably have heard of FHA loans, where you only put three and a half percent down, as opposed to having to put 20 or 25 percent down when you're not living at the property. And other programs, loan programs around, you know, your area, wherever people are watching, I'm sure there are banks nearby where maybe you can only put maybe they only require you to put 5% down or you know maybe 10% down and not the huge amounts that you would need as an investor where you're not living at the property. So to me, I started that way. And to me, that's the best way to start and kind of learn things. But once you start building a track record, you can start getting into more of you know other people money type of investments, OPM situations. And so for me, for the first, I think probably five years or so of investing, I just did my own deals. And mm-hmm. I would basically save as much money as I can. And not splurge on anything. Pay my bills, but also set money aside for investing in real estate. Mm-hmm. And so I started out with a duplex. I bought, um, I think, paid two hundred thirty thousand dollars for that duplex. I put ten percent down, so that was twenty three thousand. So that's you know not a small amount either. I could have done a, an FHA at the time, so I could have done a three and a half, so it would have been mm-hmm. less. But you know initially. You have to kind of save the money, not overspend on your living expenses, not overspend on your discretionary expenses and kind of, you know, prepare for investing and Mm -hmm. be disciplined. And then once you do that, then you kind of scale up. You can either, you know, live in that property for a bit and then go buy another house hack and keep the one you started with as a rental and, you know, rent the apartment you were living in. Or if you save enough money, you can then, you know, start putting money down. Um, Like I did, my next deal was uh, two properties bought together where I put 25% down.
0: Real quick, uh, maybe sure. you can explain the FHA loan because I feel like my yeah. audience is probably newer because I'm, I'm teaching online business usually. So um, yeah, maybe you can walk through what that means uh, for people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and sorry for rambling and <laughs> I get really excited. So um, FHA loans are Fair Housing Administration loans. So they're loans that are backed by the federal government. And basically they provide, they, they insure against default so that lenders are more willing to Lend at uh, more risky terms. A typical loan, which is we call it a conventional, non FHA insured loan, requires you know 20 percent down, regardless whether it's um, a single family or a multifamily. If someone's looking to get a property buy a house, they, they want to live in it and they want to get a loan, typically the requirement is 20%. So, and that's because the the lender wants to make sure that the person has enough skin in the game, that they're not just going to take out a loan and default on it and then leave the landlord kind of holding the bag. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a risk tolerance issue for lenders. But when the federal government steps in with an FHA loan, they say to the lenders, we're gonna insure this borrower and this loan against default so that you can give this borrower better terms in order to buy a property. And the purpose for the FHA loans for the government to do that, federal government to do that, is to incentivize homeownership in people, possibly people, lower income people, or people with poorer credit scores and those sorts of things. And so how real estate investors can take advantage of this is if you want to house hack, all FHA loans require you to live at the property. If you are willing to house hack, you can buy a property, whether you know you could go from one unit to four units, up to four units, you can get that type of a loan where your term, or rather term, the down payment requirement is much lower than would be standard for most banks because of this feature where the government's insuring it. That's one of the Features. The other feature is that you can have a loan with a much worse credit score than you would normally be able to do, again, because the government is insuring the loan. And so those are the two biggest obstacle for most obstacles for most people buying properties is a down payment where they don't have enough money and two is poor credit or credit that's not quite up to par. And so that prevents people from investing real estate in, in buying, you know, single-family homes to live in. And so this is a shortcut for that.
0: Sweet. So that one is a. Uh, it's usually what three or 3.5 percent down or something like that, right? Yeah,
1: three and a half percent down as sort of the the lowest you can go. You can go much. You can go more than that, but three and a half percent is the lowest down payment they'll let you do for just a regular FHA mortgage.
0: Cool. And then you mentioned house hacking, and people might not know what that means. So yeah, yeah. maybe you can you can do another definition with that.
1: So just a quick plug too. I have three videos, a series on house hacking on my YouTube channel. Um, So Sharon, maybe you can link that with this video. But yeah, I talk about my first investment. I talk about how to finance a house hack where I interviewed another friend of mine who's a mortgage broker and she goes through kind of the process and what's possible. And then also how to find a house hack, how to kind of weed through properties out there. But what a house hack is, is basically a property that, has the potential of being a rental in some shape or form. It could be a uh, single family home with rooms where rooms that could be rented out to people. Um, maybe it's on Airbnb or roommates or whatnot, or it's a multifamily property where it's more than one unit, like a duplex, a triplex, fourplex, et cetera, where if you lived in, in one of the units, you could still get income from the other units. So mm-hmm. a house hack is basically a hybrid between a rental property and a primary residence for people. Cool. So you can live at the, at the property and, kind of, you know, have that as your primary residence and make money from other parts of the property.
0: Awesome. So now let's keep continuing with your journey. So you started, sorry about that. Uh, So, you know, we're scaling up now. So um, how, how did you start uh, collecting more properties and things like that? Yeah. So after
1: my first few deals, I started kind of, you know, networking with people. I partnered up with a guy that I used to, I was playing basketball with, Um, you know, just a buddy of mine who we're talking about real estate one day and I didn't know he was investing uh, he didn't know that I was investing and come to find out he just bought um, a six unit building um, in, in you know a nearby town. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And then kind of get got together. So, well, let's partner, let's buy something together. I said, OK, and how are we going to do that? And so then we started looking for, um, you know, people who might be interested in investing their money, being private lenders, essentially. So being banks on our deals and making a much higher percent interest return than they would from a CD or bank or, you know, even the stock market um, in some cases where it's guaranteed interest every month. And so that's kind of where it got started. I think uh, the first time uh, I did a purchase, I bought a property that way was in 2017 and there was, it was a pretty steep learning curve. It was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of asking, you know, I basically went to everyone in my network, whoever I knew, that might have money. I didn't even know whether they had money or an interest in investing, but I basically just talked to everyone I could about you know, investing in real estate and about what I've done so far. The big thing about it was the track record and being able to show that, hey, I've done these deals, I've been very successful with them on my own, using my own money, you know, I can be even more successful if you are basically backing me for these deals. And so I did, a couple of, I did a deal with him, with this business partner that I mentioned, uh, we bought two properties together. And then after that, you know, I actually, another one of my friends who, who's been in real estate for a long time, even longer than me, approached me and kind of, he saw that I partnered with this other guy and he said, well, let's do some business together. And sort of him and I have been investing in properties since then. And we've been scaling quite a bit. I can go into the more specifics if you want more, but I don't want to keep rambling.
0: No, I mean, I'm curious. So you essentially use kind of other people's money to finance your projects, right? right? How did you get that trust? you're saying that they started seeing you have this portfolio or something and they're like, oh, I want in. like how does that work?
1: Yeah. So I would say if, so if people are interested in doing that, you've got to start out with people you're already friends with and maybe family members. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you would basically approach them and maybe you're talking about a specific deal or you're looking at a property and you're, you're saying, you know this is a, this is a good potential property to buy and you're explaining what you've done in the past, and then you basically ask them, do you know anyone who might be interested in investing uh, as a lender and making a 10% interest only return for three years? That's kind of been how we've invested, um, how we've gotten lenders, which is basically to say to them, do you know anybody who might be interested? And that kind of gets their wheels going in their head like, hmm, well, I have some money in an IRA um, that's just sitting there or maybe in the bank account. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. Or maybe they have uh, some other just a brokerage account where they've been in the stock market for a while and the market's at all time highs and they want to get out and maybe invest in something else while you know they're anticipating a downturn and they can make 10% return with us, that sounds like a pretty nice opportunity for them. So that's kind of how we started. But a lot of it was, you know, friends and family to start with. And once we've built that track record, you know, I think we've gotten a few hundred thousand dollars in the beginning from people like that. Those people started telling other people about, hey, I'm I'm making, you know, $20,000 a year doing absolutely nothing, you know, just collecting interest. And it's coming in every month. It's secured by the real estate that these guys are investing in. And I'm no trust and like them. One, one partner is an attorney. The other part is an investor. For the for the state government, you know, these are trustworthy people that you know you can make good money just passively investing with, and that's kind of how we were able to do that.
0: Cool. So it's kind of like a syndication, or clarify, I guess, what that means too. Um, so essentially are you pooling together money from people and then investing in your own deals and then like basically cash flowing from those and giving a percentage of that to the other owners and stuff like that? So I'll
1: explain what a syndication is and kind of how that looks as compared to what we're doing. In a syndication deal, the people who are investing actually get a part ownership interest in the property typically. Mm-hmm. And so you have the sort of the main folks who are the managers or the deal runners of the syndication deal. And then you can, might have, you know, tens or hundreds of people who are investing in a piece of the property piece mm. of the uh, of the company really that's that's managing the property and then they get an interest return and then they also get an ownership uh, a portion of it as well so that when the property's sold they get they get some of that uh, money back or so you know they get their money back plus whatever profits they make with us what we're doing right now is we're working maybe with only one or two people maybe three people on a particular purchase and they're acting strictly as lenders for us so they are making their profit on the deal is guaranteed at a particular rate. We have a mortgage uh, contract with them. We We have a loan agreement and we have a promissory note and some other agreements that are all signed and tied to the property. And then those agreements are for a set period of years. Typically we do two years or three years and we essentially buy a property with their money and we use their money to do any renovations that the property like all cash yes right so so they give us they give our llc the the investment investment funds that are needed to buy the property we buy the property they get it they get a security interest in the property we then you know usually we we structure so that there's extra money over and above the purchase price that we Mm -hmm. can do renovations if those are necessary on the deal so we're using their money for the purchase price and for the renovations and then once we complete the renovations there The entire time they're making monthly pay, they're making monthly interest on their money, Mm -hmm. and then uh, we would go and refinance that property with a commercial lender. Presumably, we have increased the value of the property, and we can refinance it at 80% loan to value for what that property is now worth after we've remodeled it. And those people would would be entitled to their money back. So, basically, we pay pay off the principal of the loan as well as the interest that they've made on it. Now, what we usually do is we say to people, We're about to pay you back, you want to keep reusing that money for another deal. And most people want to do that because they love it because it's yes. a, it's a monthly payment that comes in without them having to do anything for it.
0: How much are they putting in? So like how much are your homes <laughs> usually costing?
1: Yeah. So we have the, the lowest amount someone's invested with us is 20,000. Oh. And I think the highest amount that someone has invested with us, you know, on one loan basis is 300,000. So that's kind of the range. And we have, I think we have like 10 or 12 investors now. And it's everything in between. But as far as property costs or values go, in my area, I'm in the capital region of New York State. So not New York City, not the super high price market where you know things cost millions of dollars. We're sort of in between. We have a pretty stable economy here. We have good jobs and we have good employers around here in businesses and government uh, institutions where there's a solid base so we don't really fluctuate that much in price you know when we had the downturn in 2009 then Home values didn't go down that much mm-hmm. and since then you know they've appreciated but not as not as crazy as California or you know San Francisco or anything like that mm-hmm. so i would say for us a sweet spot i think for there's obviously variations depending on you know how good of an area it is better school districts you make things cost more uh, slightly worse school districts, they'll be cheaper. Our sweet spot is somewhere around I think forty thousand to fifty thousand, maybe thirty to fifty thousand per apartment in a building. So if we have, for example, a triplex. We don't want to pay more than one hundred fifty thousand for a triplex. We have a four unit. We don't want to pay more than two hundred thousand for it. It varies. You know, it all depends on the circumstances of the deal. Some of my one of my best deals has been, so far, has been uh, a 10 unit building that we bought for uh, $375,000. Wow, <laughs> yeah, that one needed renovations, and I can talk more about that if you want to jump into one of the specifics of a deal, but you know that's kind of the price that's the price point that we'd like to get that's a that was a really good deal. but yeah. um you know other deals that we've, we buy are typically in the I think one hundred to three hundred thousand dollar range is probably the ballpark
0: for us. so you're usually doing like multifamily or apartments, you're saying?
1: Yeah, we don't want to buy anything less than three units, so okay. we don't do single families right now, we don't do duplexes right now. Everything we want to buy me and my business partner with whom I'm doing most of the work, uh, most of the real estate investing. We want to buy properties that are somewhere between 3 to 20 units. That's kind of where we're looking right now.
0: Awesome. And how is that cash flow looking like? For example, for a fourplex for um, under two hundred thousand, how much are you getting for monthly cash flow?
1: So let me just think of one example. So we have one fourplex that we bought in 2018 that I'm thinking of specifically. And so the rents were, and we haven't really raised the rents too much on, on them. Uh, only one of the tenants turned over; the other three are still there from from prior owner. But at the time we bought the building, two of the apartments were renting for thousand each. One apartment was renting for nine seventy five month. Mm-hmm. And the last apartment was renting, I believe, for seven hundred per month. That's really good. That's crazy. So yes, yeah, so we're talking like thirty six and change, thirty seven hundred ish for mm-hmm. that property. We bought it for two hundred and ten thousand.
0: Wow. Okay. Where but is this again? Just,
1: this is right in the one of the um, surrounding cities near Albany, New York. So okay. this is it's the city's name is Cohoes, New York, and it's sort of it's a smaller city. It's it, you know doesn't have a huge population, but because it's part of this, it's called the Capital Region area mm-hmm. near Albany. It's sort of lumped together with it because all the businesses, all the employers are kind of in the same, you know, within 30 minute radius. So mm-hmm. our, our area is pretty diverse in that sense that we have, you know, some suburbs, we have some towns, we have some cities, and they're all clustered together. So it makes it makes it easy to, you know, go outside of Albany and still buy something good. And, you know, people can still rent from you and that are working in Albany and, and, and that sort of thing. And so, With that property, you can't just look at the income and the purchase price because New York State is known for all kinds of crazy expenses, you know, government expenses. So you have your taxes, which are among the highest in the country for New York State, so property Mm -hmm. taxes. Um, So that has to be factored in. You also, you know, we have fairly high insurance property insurance just because of claims and things like that. You know, we don't have tornadoes or hurricanes, but we have other things, you know, in the winter, you know, winter months, pipes freezing, all those things that causes damage that costs insurance companies money. We do have some flood uh, zones as well. So that's a concern for people, for investors. So all those things need to be factored in. But overall, I would say our profit margins, if I have to be conservative, after all the different expenses where we factor in not just the standard fixed expenses, but also the capital expenditures on properties. I would say probably maybe $300 per apartment what we're making.
0: That's really good.
1: Two to 300, I would say, conservatively.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. You also mentioned with the lowest loan you got from someone who was like 30000 I think. 20000 Yeah. 20000 20, So, how does that work? Like, was that the purchase price was actually only that much, mm-hmm. or are they like splitting it with other people? How does that Correct.
1: work? Correct. Yes. So, we are pooling some funds. Mm-hmm. So, basically, that lender's loan is sort of supplement to what someone else's lend on a particular property. So, it'll be, let's say, someone's lending. One hundred sixty thousand dollars, and that's the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And then someone else is willing to do another twenty or forty, and then you know that goes toward the construction or rent costs. Okay, so that's kind of how that would work. Yep.
0: Okay, and then when you're buying it, it's under your name, or like it's not under the lender's name, right? It's just it's you. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. So the
1: way it would work is the lender gets a, a mortgage interest. The way that works out is you have the purchasers buying it, and they get a deed, which has their name on it. In our case, we use LLCs for everything. So it'll be an LLC that owns the property. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lien on that property that is in favor of this lender. And the Mm -hmm. lien basically alerts anybody else who may want to buy the property or if this if the owner wants to sell that property to someone else that lien would be an encumbrance on title preventing that owner from selling the property without the loan being paid off so that mm-hmm. secures the lender to be paid back if and when the property is sold
0: okay that makes sense and then it's interesting so when you refinance it then you're basically taking out a conventional loan each time right so you know usually don't they say like you you can get like 4 to 10 and then after that it starts getting difficult to get those loans like how does that work
1: sure yes yeah. so so the difference for us and that's true conventional lenders usually have limits it's anywhere from 4 to 10 on how, how many loans you can have with one lender mm-hmm. uh, or actually with any of any lenders the difference for us is that we're not going the conventional route we are going to commercial lending where mm-hmm. they don't have those restrictions at all they when you, once you get into the commercial lending area you can get as many loans as they are feeling comfortable to lend you and they will look specifically at the assets that they're lending on, so they're they're looking at the income, they're looking at the expenses, they're looking mm-hmm. at your track record, um, all those things put together, and there really isn't an issue at least at the moment right now, unless something happens in the economy where you know things go south. But right now, you can do that at least with lenders in my area that that do commercial loans as much as you want.
0: That's pretty cool. So how big is your portfolio now?
1: So I am at 45 apartments now. My business partner is somewhere together between the two of us. We're close to 200. Um, Wow. So he owns you know, his own with some other business partners. I own some in my own name. I own some with first business partner that I mentioned. And then I own a bunch with him that we've purchased in the last three years. Oh,
0: awesome. How does that partnership work if you guys separately have your own and then you have some together so like is it like whatever's in your network you're like all right i'm putting my name on it whatever's on his he puts it and then when do you decide it's like something you guys both do together like
1: yeah so that's a great question one of the things that's really important is if you're going to partner with someone that you have to partner with somebody not only going to complement what you do well and what you don't do well but also one you can sort of work these things out with and how this is gonna work. And it's always, it's kind of an ongoing relationship and it's always kind of evolving and morphing and all of those things. But the way we have it set up is that he has properties that he's purchased before me with another business partner. He's still buying properties with another business partner and he's also buying properties with me. And you know, sometimes it depends on, you know, do we have, do me and, me and him with our lenders, do we have financing available or funds available to buy something that came on the market or something that we're looking at? Or if we don't, maybe his other business partner um, has lenders that are willing to buy that property with him. So for me, my main goal, I mean, I don't look at it as, oh no, you can't buy with someone else. Like I'm just looking at it from, from my perspective as, am I advancing where I need to go through my partnership with him? And the answer is yes. You know, I'm looking at this building, let's buy it. Or I don't really, I'm not really interested in this one. Okay. He says, I'll buy it with, with the other guy. And that's uh. kind of how we've done it. But In terms of who owns what, it just depends on who came to the table with the deal and kind of, you know, when, at what time it was a purchase.
0: That makes sense. Uh, Let's get into kind of finding those deals. How do you normally get those deals?
1: yeah so when i started it was uh mostly through the mls Mm -hmm. the multiple listing service which is the website or the the service that's provided by your local uh realtors and um since then since 2011 when i started things have gotten much tougher to find good deals on that service and so we've had to kind of expand and try to do different try different things now that we've developed the track record um we're kind of getting people calling us and saying, hey, I know of this deal or I, I own this property, I want to sell it. Are you guys interested? And so we pick up some deals that way. We've purchased from tax foreclosures, one of mm. our deals last year. Um, was a tax foreclosure, which, you know, it's its it's own thing. Yeah. How do you find that? So in our area, we have tax auctions that are administered by the local municipalities. Mm. And I'm sure that's probably true for, for the Bay Area as well and other parts of the country. But basically... Uh, when property owners are behind on taxes, the the municipality has the right to take that property from them, following a specific process defined by state law. And once they've taken that property, they need to dispose of it to at least recoup some of that money that's owed. And so they put it out, out for auction. Which there are websites on, you know, cities' websites that that talk about auctions that are happening. And so you just attend an auction and you bid on the property. Um, hopefully you had the chance to do some research on it maybe went and saw it in person. For us, the one that we bought last year, we, we didn't even set foot inside because they didn't allow it. Mm-hmm. So we basically bought a property sight unseen and it was a pretty harrowing experience because there's another investor who really wanted that property and I was there bidding on it.
0: So you're there like in-person bidding? Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah.
1: I mean, you could you could also, there are online auctions as well. Um, there, are, there are, aside from tax foreclosure auctions, there are mortgage foreclosure auctions, but this particular one. I was in the audience. My business partner wasn't there. He was on the phone, and you guys are like doing
0: this. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen
1: the property in person either. But we had cash in hand. You know, we had uh, certified checks for the down payment, and you know, I think the property started was it's a three-unit building, very very large. You know, ended up being a pretty pretty Good deal for us, but the initial bid they said was thirty thousand dollars. Mm. So of course there's like six or seven people bidding on that. Okay, so yeah. 30, 35, 40, 43, 45, you know, and it just keeps going up and up. And then you know, then it's just me and this other guy, and we're at you know over fifty thousand dollars. And I'm on the phone, Vinny, my business partner, and I'm like, You sure you want me to bid him up? He's like, Yes, yes, keep going. So eventually I think we end up getting it for fifty-seven thousand, which his last bid was 56. I went 57 and he gave up. And so... you know, then we had to pay the auction fees and, and other the closing costs to the city ended up being like seventy thousand dollars just mm-hmm. to purchase that property, and then we had to put a ton of money renovating it. It, it almost ended up not being a good deal, but <laughs> right. we, we ended up okay. But it was definitely not something that I would always recommend, especially to
0: new people. So yeah, a lot of it usually is from your network, though, like for the deals. Yeah, and kind of- we do some
1: we do some marketing too. So mm-hmm. you know, we market to to different owners uh, or people that we think might be interested in selling. So we do that as well. And and um, I also want to mention. So, as a part owner of a real estate brokerage, we have agents that work for our brokerage. So we yeah. have those kind of connections as well. So sometimes we will have agents. who we'll have a lead on something coming to us, saying, "Hey, you know, this is a, this is a property you might be interested in buying." So. We have that angle
0: as well. Okay, cool. How long did it take for you to build up that portfolio where people are trusting you now and like coming to you?
1: Yeah, um, I would say, I mean, it took years. It took a few years Um, Mm -hmm. between gathering down payment money, closing on a property, managing it for a while you know, building enough funds to go and buy another one, like, mm-hmm. it takes time, you know. So this is unlike, you know, maybe businesses, online businesses, and, you know, you see you see ads on, on YouTube videos talking about, hey, I made X number, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, you know, with Amazon FBA or something else. Mm-hmm. This is a slow go, but it's sort of a snowball. So mm-hmm. once you get the momentum going, the momentum is going to take a while. So it takes some time and effort and knowledge and you know, research and all that. But after a while, I think I would say maybe three, four years, you can really start building. Uh, and depending on how involved you are in real estate, you know, mm-hmm. I was doing this part time while working and still am. So if you had the ability to kind of go full speed and really network with people, attend local real estate groups and all, that, all those things, you know, you might be able to do it quicker, but you do need that track record, in my opinion, before you can really do, you know, OPM deals you know, that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think it's similar to most online businesses that you pursue of like the snowball effect of like, it grows exponentially. The first a thousand dollars might be harder than like the rest, right? Right. So yeah. the more you build up your brand, the more people will like come back to you and stuff like that. And, you know, see that. So uh, that's awesome. So when it comes to your, the homes you're purchasing, what is your guys' like buying criteria?
1: Yeah. So like I said, price per unit is something that we look at, you know, that's sort of general kind of ballpark Guideline. I don't think we ever want to go above fifty thousand dollars per apartment per unit in a building. If we do, it's usually because we see upside in being able to add value to the property, meaning that maybe we can add additional units, put put more units in the building. Yeah, there's space for, or we think that the rents can really be raised significantly. So those are usually things that we look at and consider. But beyond that, it's sort of like the rule of thumb. Then we really look at kind of the the costs the the expenses and the income potential from the building so it's hard to say we want to make at least $200 cash flow per unit after you know being super conservative after all expense i think we are hitting quite a bit over that for mm-hmm. a lot of them yeah. But you know, you want to be conservative because there is the potential for needing large expenditures on a property. You know, things certain things break or, or at the end of their useful life, you got a budget for those as well. So I, I factor those in to mm-hmm. all my calculations. So that's that's kind of how we look at them.
0: Uh, when it comes to neighborhoods though, do you live in that area or do you did you have to learn a whole new market?
1: So yeah, so I live in the in the capital region. So I'm very familiar with a lot of different areas, So I would say probably 30 mile radius, maybe 20 mile radius around the capital, I'm Mm -hmm. very familiar with. I don't typically buy in the area that I live in because I live in a slightly more expensive area where first of all, there aren't that many single or there are not that many multifamily properties for sale and Mm -hmm. when there are, they're very expensive and the return on investment is much lower in those areas. So what we try to do is we try to find in the middle of the uh, road um, locations where Mm -hmm it's not a really bad area in terms of property values crime and everything else and it's not the best area either you mm. want to be in the sweet spot where it's appealing to most people it's not that expensive taxes aren't that high but we can still get decent rents you know we're not going to get the top dollar rents and we're we're also not going to pay the top dollar prices either so that's kind of how we how we try to do it
0: so you know how i like can't do the properties like in the bay area i probably have to Mm -hmm. do out of state do you think this is possible for out of state you know investors and like for example if i wanted to build something up where like i can get funding from people that i know in my uh, circle can i build this up with uh, units like out of state and what was steps would I have to take to do that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think it's limited to um, your ability to get lenders and get other people to invest with you is not limited by you not being able to invest in your, you know, kind of neck of the woods. I think it all comes down to how credible you are in what you've done so far and being Mm -hmm. able to show people and get them to believe and trust that you are capable, you know, buying good deals making a return on your investment and paying them back and paying mm-hmm. them an interest rate that you're promising them. So mm-hmm. that's you no know, as long as you can accomplish that, there's no issue with where you're investing. So mm-hmm. I know that you're you you have a property in California now and you're under contract to buy two other properties in Texas. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And once you buy those and you you know run them for a little bit and I know that you and your boyfriend are doing stuff together in the Bay Area and he's he's investing in real estate. I think that using him and leveraging his connections and kind of doing that together, I think you're you're almost there if if not already in terms of having enough credibility to to get people to invest with you.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's good to hear. Yeah, so do you recommend focusing on one like neighbor, like one area, one city before kind of expanding? It sounds like you mainly do one area, right?
1: Yeah, I do want area because we have such an abundance here and the deals are still available. For me, I just don't have a need to go outside of Mm. where I am. And I like that I can go and I can visit the properties easily, and my business mm-hmm. partner can and you know we have roots and connections with all of our contractors, if there are evictions that need to happen, we know the courts, we know mm-hmm. the judges, all those things are useful to have because you know if once you go out outside of the area, you have to find those people all over again, and you have to build those connections, build that support network so mm-hmm. for us, it just makes sense to continue with recent changes to Uh, landlord and tenant laws in New York, Mm. I'm starting to think about, you know, does it make sense to continue building this portfolio here because of such an unfriendly landlord uh, environment right now in New York? So that's definitely causing me to to do some thinking in regard to possibly going out of state. But Uh I'm not at that point yet. Our laws aren't that bad yet, but Uh it's definitely something I'm watching closely
0: yeah is there any risk you find to focusing on one area, or like is your area really good that you feel like it's going to appreciate for a while and things are going to look up?
1: yeah, I think there's always risk when you're just in one area, but you have to consider what that area is made up of for us so if if an economy went down right mm-hmm. for a period of time, a downturn in the economy can result in closures of businesses and a loss of jobs and inability for you know your renters to pay your rent and for mm-hmm you know, owners to pay their mortgages and property values could go down as a result and all those things. But you have to look at, you know, maybe if you're in a small town in Ohio somewhere, right? And you have one uh, employer who is, you know, maybe a huge employer for the the town, but it's just one employer and they have a factory there or whatnot. And then something happens in the economy or the local state laws, and it's no longer profitable for that employer to be there and they just pick up and move their factory to Canada or something. You had all your rental properties, d- depending on those workers being your tenants, now you're in big trouble. In that sense, if that's the situation that you're looking at, if that's what the town looks like or the area looks like, then yes, I would say it's very risky to just be there and have all of your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. But for our area, I do feel like we're pretty stable. You know, we have government education employers and we have business employers and they're, they're not really going to go somewhere
0: Uh, when it comes to running out those properties do you have a property management team in place do you have multiple since you have like a lot of units now how does that work
1: yeah so that has been a challenge and it's definitely a growing pain as you get more units i know that you use a property management company for your current rental and you're planning to do that for your the ones you're buying in texas Mm -hmm. which is smart especially if you don't want to make that your kind of your main thing Mm -hmm. um for us The way we've been able to do it so far, I'm not saying that we won't change this in the future, but the way we've done it so far is we've basically built up our own property management team, essentially, where we're sitting at the top of the team. But we have people that have agents that go out and rent our apartments, have um, guys that can go in and do an apartment turnover, clean it, paint it, fix things up, refurbish things, and get that done. And then we have for evictions, I don't even do my evictions most of the time even though I'm an attorney because I'm too busy with my day job and I have Mm -hmm. other responsibilities at my law firm that I wouldn't even do that work. We outsource that as well. So we have multiple key players in sort of our network that can handle all those different tasks. But right now we are the overseers and the managers at the top. So, you know, when tenants issues come in or they ask us questions or there's some some kind of a complaint, we do have to figure out who we're sending that off
0: to. Uh, Okay, so you are, oh, okay. So they're like communicating with you guys, but then you just like send the work to other people exactly cool and then have you faced any problem tenants like have there been challenges with that oh for sure
1: we've had i've seen it all honestly you know now that i've been doing this for uh, nine years almost i've seen everything everything from problem tenants where they weren't paying to their domestic issues with tenants where you know, uh, there was police involvement in some cases. I don't want to say too much to discourage people from, <laughs> from landlording, but yeah. what I will say is that you just need to look at it as a business, take your emotions out of it, which I know is very hard to do. And I haven't always been able to do that myself effectively, but mm-hmm. you got to take your emotions out of it and you got to look at it as a business. You have to be fair to people, but you also have to be firm. So mm-hmm. a lot of times people have told us about, you know, really bad things that have happened in their lives or things that happened to their family and all those things, whether or not they're true, I don't know i sympathize with them at the same time you know i level with them and i tell them um you know i i understand that you're going through something but Mm -hmm. you know we have to Pay our bills, and we just have to take the steps that are necessary. Meaning that you know we start as far as evictions, for example, it's a long process in in our state as it is in your state, which is I think even longer in your state than ours. But certain steps need to be taken. You can't just rely on a tenant saying, "I'll pay you next month." You know, "I'll Mm -hmm. pay you for both months that I'm behind next month." Mm -hmm. Okay, you can. You know, I tell them, "We'll start the eviction process, and if you can pay by X date, you're telling me you're going to pay. We'll stop it. We'll stop the eviction. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we're going to continue." So. Just so they understand you know kind of matter of factly that this is this is what's happening most it. Of time works out
0: would you be able to talk about like your best deal walk us through the numbers yeah. and like the process
1: i'd love to yeah so this is a deal that i just mentioned a little while ago this is a 10 unit apartment building um that we bought the 10 unit apartment building is in a pretty good area again it's not the best area in our neck of the woods but it's it's decent um it's it can attract pretty decent tenants with fairly high paying you know rental amounts the way we came across the deal well let me first back up so we bought the deal for three hundred seventy five thousand dollars. that mm-hmm. was a 10 unit building We needed about 80 to 100 hundred thousand dollars of upgrades and updates mm-hmm. in order to you know, bring it to its full potential. And we're almost done with all of that now. We bought it in the summer of 2019. So it's been a little over half a year now that we've owned that property. But it came to us through word of mouth. This was a an owner who had owned this building for I believe 27 years, the only building that he owned. He was kind of a blue collar uh, guy. He's He was a construction guy. He owned his own construction company. So over the years, he's done the management and the fixing up and all those other things on the building himself. And and um, he was getting to a point in his life where he didn't want to do that anymore. Hmm. Um, he, I believe, he was close to 60, close to retirement, and so he wanted to sell. When I first heard about the building, I quickly I looked it up online. I'm like, oh man, this is this is a really nice building.
0: Yeah. Wait, real quick, how did you find yeah. this guy again? It, it was
1: it was word of mouth. It was somebody who he reached out to us to okay. to, to sell cool. this building. Yeah, because he knew we're you know we knew we're in the in the market buying buying buildings, um, multifamily especially like that. So that's kind of that's kind of how he came to us. You know, when it came to us, I think it was. I it might have been an email. I forget what it was. I, I got an address, right? And I looked at I looked up the address, and I'm like, oh wow, it's a solid brick two-story building where it's basically five duplexes in a row connected to each other. So up mm. and down five next to each other. So there's ten total. So five down, five up, and it's almost it's like half of a city block that the building was you know was sitting on. So it was, the apartments were large. They're over a thousand square feet per apartment. It was designed as a multi-family building, so it wasn't one of those conversions where it was originally something else, and then it became a multifamily building. And um, I saw the potential right away. And so I said, you know, let's contact this guy back. Let's go meet with him. Let's go check out the building and, and uh, see what we can do. And so he met us at the building. We went through it. He, his rents were so much lower than they should have been. I could, you know, you could tell just from experience in this area for this type of apartment for this size, it should have been. Getting, he should have been getting a lot more money for him. He was renting them for, I think, the lowest was like 550, 150 per month, and the highest might have been I think 725 per month. And because they were each two bedrooms, one bath, or three bedrooms, one bath, and over a thousand square feet in the location that it was in, we knew that we could probably get over a thousand dollars per unit for those for those apartments. And so right away, you know, we knew this is a very good building that we wanted. So we started the negotiation process and talking to him. And you know, this is where it becomes harder because you don't have um, you don't have an agent in between you don't have a, an attorney it's kind of owner to owner or you know buyer to owner right and on the one on one hand it's easier and the, on the other hand it's harder he wouldn't tell us well, how much he wanted for the building at first he wanted us to put out a number and mm-hmm. you know that's a uh, typical negotiating tactic you know we didn't really want to put out a number because mm-hmm. we didn't know where he was right mm-hmm. so we put out a number which we thought was extremely low. Um, mm-hmm. as a, you know, just for, for the hell of it, because, you know, what do we have to lose? So I think we offered him 325000 to start with. Now, mind you, in the in the lo- in the location and the condition that the building was in at the time, I think it was easily over six hundred thousand without wow. having to do anything for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So we thought we were lowballing this. Guy. He said he said no. You know, I'm not going to go that low. I want something more. We we're like, well, what, what do you want? And he said, well, my building with the city is assessed for, I think he said four hundred twenty-five thousand. And so that he kind of set the top for us. On mm-hmm. it. And you know, we were both kind of did a double take, like. Okay, so we're not that far off, and we're starting to make money on this, right? So after some more negotiating, settled on 375,000. Wow, nice. We waived all contingencies. So in most contracts, you have an inspection contingency where if you get a a licensed inspector in, something goes wrong, you can back out. We waived that, so that was a risk we took because we felt confident that whatever issues come up, we can handle them, especially at the price we're getting. And, you know, we told them it's cash, so we don't need to go to a bank to get approval. There's no appraisal or any of that. Mm-hmm. So that was a, you know, selling point for him yeah. as well. So that, that helped. And then we closed on it. So 300, 375000 was private money. And then we had another 100000 of private money to do renovations. And wow. we started renovating. And one thing I forgot to mention is that three of the apartments in this 10 unit were vacant. So he wasn't even getting rent for those apartments. Um, So seven apartments were rented, three were not. Mm. He said those three that were vacant had been vacant for over a year. So you can really, you can get a picture of, this, you know, he really wasn't, he didn't want to rent anymore. He hmm. didn't want to be a landlord. He was tired. And you know, that was part of the reason why the price was the price because mm-hmm. he didn't think that it was worth it, the condition that it was in. So we renovated. Currently, we have, we've rented fully renovated six of the 10 apartments and the four remaining apartments are, had been and currently are rented to an organization that helps people with special needs find Mm -hmm. housing. And we're negotiating with them to raise the rents on those apartments without really having to do much renovating to those apartments. Mm. Um, If we end up getting an agreement done, then, you know, we'll probably just proceed, you know, move forward as is. If we don't, then we'll go in and renovate those apartments and raise the rents even more. Mm. So that's the plan. But right now, each of the remodeled six apartments is renting for $1,100 a month. So we've more than doubled the rents on those. And the four that we're in the process of negotiating, we're probably going to get up to maybe nine. I think we asked for nine seventy-five or nine fifty, something like that. Yeah. So it'll be. I think that comes to over ten thousand a month. Um, cash flow, maybe eleven, something like that. And um, not cash flow. Sorry, uh, gross rent. That's gross rent. But of course, doing that increases the value of the building. I think it probably if we were to go and sell it right now, it probably be over a million dollars.
0: Oh my very, God. Very,
1: very good deal. This is one, Congrats! You know, <laughs> thanks. Thanks a lot. I Appreciate it. Those deals. I just don't want people to think that. Oh yeah, this guy's doing them every day. No, this was a special situation, Mm -hmm. special deal. Most of my other deals are not this uh, much of a home run, but once in Mm -hmm. a while you get them.
0: That sounds amazing. Like it sounds like, you know, your portfolio and everything you're doing has been like, you're just killing it right now. And you you also have your own brokerage. So I want to get into that as well, because you can kind of cash flow like passively from having one, right? So I'd love to learn. Yeah, I'd love to learn more about that. So when did you start that? And what was your thought process behind that?
1: Yeah. So perk here of being an attorney, you meant, you asked me that in the beginning. knew York State, an attorney can go and get their broker's license. So skip the salesperson. Let me back up. Most, In order to become a real estate agent and, and get into that, mm-hmm. you have to uh, do a test. Uh, you have to pass the test. Then you have to have some experience in order to get to the next level with being a broker and having mm-hmm. people work under you, agents working under you. So in New York State, you can skip that whole process as an attorney because they look at it as you have the necessary knowledge and expertise from your schooling from law school and passing the extensive bar exam. And you can pay a fee, apply for a license and become a broker. So for me, I immediately did that as soon as I became an attorney. And if anyone here from New York is listening, they're an attorney, you can do that if 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 you're not familiar with it. So that was an easy thing to do. It was a very cheap thing. Just, I think it was maybe $150 or something like that that I had to pay, got my broker's license. I didn't really do anything with it for many years, except for just doing some of my own deals where I acted as my own agent on them. But then in 2017, the business partner with whom I own the rental properties, most of the rental properties came to me uh, and said, do you want to partner up and just create a brokerage? together. And he had been working as an agent for another broker, basically just doing deals, uh, get, making commissions on his own purchases mm. with his other business partner up to that time. And so he was making decent money with that. But his thought was, well, if we become brokers, owner brokers, then we can have other people, agents who will work under us and close deals and we'll make some percentage of their of their profits, of their commissions, they'll go to us. And so that's how the idea was born. And we said, okay, I, you know, let's do it. Let's try it. I didn't think much of it. We didn't have anybody or connections of agents that are going to come work for us or anything like that. And so I think in the summer of 2017, we just set it up, started, set up a website, did all the things that are required to get it going. And then we slowly, slowly started adding people who were interested. Mostly they were investors who were interested in dabbling in being agents to making some commissions on the side. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it started. Um, and so as of today, we have about 10 people. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them are part-time, like I said, investors, but we have, we just picked up three full-time agents who are, that's their bread and butter. That's what they do for a living. That of course creates a substantial stream of income for, for us because they're doing this all the time.
0: Yeah. How does that work with commission? So do you have them pay you um, monthly or is it by deal? It's like split half half an half or?
1: Yeah. So the way we do it and there are different models um, of how, how you know different brokerages do it, but the way we do it is just simple per deal, we have a we have a split that mm-hmm. they get a certain um, percentage and we get a certain percentage of whatever the commission is due to the brokerage. Mm-hmm. And so the more deals they do, the more money they make and the more the more money we make. And so, you know, it's very, it's, it's mutually beneficial that way. And obviously the better producers, the people who have more experience, they're doing more deals per year, they get mm-hmm. a higher split as a result of that.
0: How did you attract those like full-time agents? Did you propose that? Oh, like you, there are no fees. You just, you know, it's just a commission base. So it's nice. Like is is that one of the selling points
1: for them? Yeah. So we did, we actually have quite a few selling points that we try to bring to, to the table with them mm-hmm. when we're when we're talking to them. One of them is the commission splits. The second thing is we don't charge any fees. It's sort of your commission is your commission. You, you get what you what you put into it. You provide certain things that I think most brokerages do provide them, but we tell them up front we pay for business cards, we pay for signs, we pay for errors and omissions insurance. It's very easy to sort of do business with us. And the other thing we say to them is we don't have any quotas. You know, we don't require you to make cold calls or sell any number of buildings per year, any of that stuff. So we're making it very hands off, you are a go-getter, you st- you're still going to be a go-getter. If you just want to do one deal where you're an investor and you're buying a fourplex and you just want to make uh, some of the commission back instead of paying an agent to do that for you, you can do that too. And that's kind of how we say that to people. And the last thing that we offer that I think nobody else or very few other broker brokers offer is our experience with investment, real estate investing. So that's how we were able to attract agents who are maybe full-time or part-time, but they also have that investor mindset and they're looking for that. And so mm. we have that opportunity.
0: Okay. That's awesome. Do you guys train those agents or like they already knew what to do and they just started going at it? Yeah.
1: So we do do some training for the, for the agents, especially for the new ones, the more experienced ones, it's more kind of like issue basis, a uh, question basis, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are issues that come up with a deal or questions they <laughs> reach out to us. A lot of the time it's pretty hands off for us. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I have a full-time job. I'm not going out, you know, doing showings. I'm not Going out and uh, listing properties, or you know, dealing with the other agents or the issues that come up. I'm basically Mm -hmm. providing oversight. My business partner is the one who is the principal broker, so he kind of handles more of the day-to-day stuff for the brokerage with the agents. I kind of do the legal stuff, you know. So if I'm doing you know some contracts that between our agents and and the brokerage or other things, kind of I'll I'll provide some oversight with that. But it's it's pretty hands-off. We do do trainings every so often. We have some online. tutorials that we've done for for basic things, but most of the time they're pretty self-sufficient and it doesn't really require a ton of our time to manage the brokerage. It's a very nice semi, very close to passive, semi-passive income.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I I feel like I'm learning so much from you right now. What are your future goals with real estate investing, with the brokerage and
1: everything like that. Sharon, I feel like I'm rambling on. I hope your I hope your viewers don't mind. Like I said, I, I get excited about this stuff, and I just keep on. I'll I'll talk no, for hours. Good. I'm so, learning
0: so much; it's yeah. amazing.
1: <laughs> so, as far as my goals, it's it's a question that I've thought about for you know for a long time, kind of and shifted and changed over time. You know, I just like you, I do want to make an impact with people. You know, helping people, especially with the YouTube channel that I started recently. You know, I I want to share what I learned. And I never say that I'm, you know, I know everything about real estate or everything about law or everything about investing. You know, there are certain things that I'm passionate about, and I've been kind of a student of the game for so long that now I feel like I can talk about it authoritatively and actually help other people who are maybe earlier on in their journey. So that's definitely a passion of mine and an interest of mine, and I want to continue doing that. But of course, the other part of it is you want to make money. You know, the the goal here is to, of course you know better myself financially my family you know financially mm-hmm. and to create a passive or semi passive stream of income that's not necessarily dependent on the my day job i love my day job i've been um, practicing law like i said even before i started investing in real estate if if you know anything about attorneys and how especially the private sector attorneys work it's a lot of work and mm-hmm. a lot of people burn out and mm-hmm. depending on you know what industry you're in what you know how big the law firm what What city? All that stuff plays a role, but you know, a lot of attorneys work very, very hard, and Mm -hmm. people don't really realize that. They think that being an attorney is kind of like a very glorious type of a profession, where Mm -hmm. you know you're making a ton of money, you got the prestige, you see the you know the shows on TV, you're portraying attorneys in a certain way, and a lot of times it's not really like that at all. You're not in court daily like like on TV or in shows. A lot of time is spent doing research and sort of really putting in hard, long hours, um, finding answers. Clients and researching, and writing, and doing all that stuff, and the ultimate result is enjoyable. And you, you kind of, have, you're happy when you can help a client. You can, you know, win a case or advise them on something that, to, that saves them money or avoids them uh, trouble. You still, you know, it's very hard work and long hours. And for us in the private sector, you have billable hours, so you have minimum hours that you have to meet every year. Um, mm-hmm. That's set by your firm, which they say, okay, well, you have to bill two thousand hours or seventeen hundred hours or Whatever it is, firms are different, but 1,800 hours a year that has to be built to your clients or to the firm's clients, and that's on top of other you know time you might spend at the firm. So you have mm-hmm. administrative time, you have other other time you spend on things, and so you end up working 50, 60 hours a week on a regular basis, and so that's draining. That that takes a toll on yourself on your health and your life and everything mm-hmm. else. And so for me, I don't know exactly where I'll end up in terms of you know my future as far as work goes and you know, law firm practice and all of that. But I want to be able to have an opportunity, an option to have a choice, you know, where I don't have to do that if I don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, exactly. forever. And I know that, you know, you share that and a lot of other people share that as well, but especially in a profession like mine where everything's billed hourly, mm-hmm. and I almost feel like I'm in a construction trade or some other trade mm-hmm. where it's an hourly type of a rate, even though I get paid salary, I still have to put in the hours that I put in mm-hmm. and you essentially become a highly paid hourly employee, which which is a difficult thing to swallow for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, no, I think we're on the same page of like, let Let's figure out a way where we have choices like we can decide you know if we don't want to work full-time anymore like we can leave or if we actually enjoy our jobs like we can still work there so it's all about kind of designing your life so I totally understand that as a goal so when it comes to biggest advice for people who are trying to do what you do right so maybe if you you know started from scratch like you don't have all of this amazing like connections and your portfolio and stuff like that if you were just starting out you know how would you approach it like what are your action items that other people can take as well?
1: Yeah, for sure. So this is going to be another long answer. I'm sorry. I think it's <laughs> it's worth it to, to give a very thorough answer. Yeah. So I would start with a budget. I would start figuring out how much you're spending on things, how much money you're making, and how much money you can set aside. So that's where I would start. And, and then try to live below your means. And you know, this isn't just for real estate. This is for everything, you know, anything, any kind of investing in your business you want to start. I think you need to know what you bring in, what you're spending, and you need to live below your, your income that's coming in. Once you've got that down, the next thing I would tackle, and maybe you could do them simultaneously, but you, next thing you need to figure out and, and sort of shore up is your credit score and your credit. Those are the two things, the amount of money you might have available, res, financial resources to invest, in real estate and the second thing is having a good as good of a credit score as you can possibly make you want those two things to be in line first you know you can do those while you're you know researching real estate learning about different things watching youtube videos my channel other channels reading books all those things you should be able to do those things simultaneously while you're working your day job that's what i would start doing and maybe for some people who are close already they have good credit scores and they have a decent amount of money saved or they're saving already they're ahead of the game but if you're not one of those people Uh, Start there and just keep learning, consuming content on real estate investing. And then that might take you a year, might take you a year and a half or two years, whatever it is. But you'll get there eventually. Once you, if you really put in the effort and the time to learn about how to raise your credit score and to save some money for investing, that's your first step.
0: And by the way, like for learning real estate investing, do you have any like quick oh yeah. resources? Sure, or- yeah.
1: BiggerPockets, mm-hmm. uh, one of the best resources out there uh, has been for, I don't know, a decade now. That's where I started. You can get so much information there. I don't know, if you're going to ask me about books later, but pretty much BiggerPockets, suite of books they have on their website I think I own Probably two thirds of them. Brandon Turner's books on uh, how to buy rental properties, how to manage rental properties. I don't have the exact titles in, in mind right now, but that's a great resource. And then just pretty much all of their books on there on that site. They're they're awesome. And my YouTube channel, check that out. And so yeah, so that that's what I would say
0: for that. Okay. And then yeah, continuing on from yeah. there
1: with the strategy. Then so
0: once you once you have your credit
1: and your finances in order, the next thing you want to do is start looking for a house hack. Now it it, it might be different. If you're if you already own a single family home and you're you know married with kids, it might be more challenging to do that. You have to make sure you get your spouse on board with that if that's what your you know your goals are. But if you're younger and I know that a lot of our YouTube audiences might be younger, maybe just mm-hmm. out of college, maybe in their 20s or whatever. That's the best time to do this to start. But again, you can do this if you're older as well. But the next thing you should be looking for is a, in my opinion, multifamily property as opposed to single family property to house mm-hmm. hack. Mm-hmm. So that you can live in one of the apartments, save yourself money on you know, uh, living expenses and have your tenants pay your mortgage down and, and maybe some other costs that come up. You probably won't make money on that in terms of cash flow, but you mm-hmm. certainly are going to save a ton of money. And that will really catapult you into now being, now you can snowball. Now you can save even more money for the next deal. That would be my recommendation for people who want to get into real estate who haven't yet. They should start with a house hack and then from just scale up from there. And then you can build on, maybe you do another house hack if you can find a good deal, or if you made enough money and you don't want to do a house hack, you just buy a straight out investment property with you know twenty percent down or twenty five percent down, and just keep scaling from there. Once you've built up the credibility and the track record, start looking for private money lenders or partners. You know, get into other deals and kind of just keep building, and then mm-hmm. you you'll be able to build once you've got that foundation going.
0: Awesome. That's great advice. And I feel like this interview has been super helpful, like, because I've been trying to do way more real estate investing and me thinking about, you know, financing of like, okay, how do I scale this past just like my own money? Because I don't want to have to keep waiting till I make enough to like put in another down payment on something else. Right. So it's like, I love that you've talked about these solutions where you can keep going infinitely, essentially. And it's really given me a lot to think about. And I'm like, this is a great kind of blueprint in terms of like myself, if I want, to try to do something like this so that's awesome and you know, I'm, I'm sure people are going to be curious about like how to find you so yeah um yeah where can people find you
1: yeah so you guys uh, if you want to find me on youtube just uh type in succeed r-e-i and i should come up or you can search me by name vitali v-i-t-a-l-i-y volpov v-o-l-p-o-v uh so you can find me on youtube you can also find me i do have a blog which is nowhere near as nice as sharon's blog uh, I have been posting some articles on there, uh, mainly just connected with the videos that I've recorded, that I posted. So I post on there and it's, it's just succeedrei.com. Um, so you can find me there. Um, you can also find me at my law firm, which is, I have my law firm profile, which is uh, www.woh. Dot com. So it's it's the initials of the three partners in the name of my law firm, which is Whiteman, Osterman, and Hannah. So W-O-H dot com. You can find me there. Just search for me by name. Yeah. And I, I also have a Facebook page. It's also Succeed REI. Just keeping the branding uh, the same there. But I don't do a ton on Facebook. Again, I just post some videos that I I, uh, put out on YouTube, but that's pretty much places where you can find me right now.
0: Perfect. And I'll put all the links in the description below so people can access them. Yeah. Thank you so much, Vitaly, for speaking with me. I feel like our listeners are going to learn a lot from this. Thanks a lot, Sharon. I really appreciate it. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps our podcast grow. And thanks again. I'll see you guys in the next one.